All right, let's let's roll with the 1838 account. Of course, the 1838 account comes from the Wentworth letter, and in modified form, this is the one we know and love today from uh, the Pearl Gate Prize. The 1842 is the Wentworth letter. 1838 is oh. the Pearl Gate Prize version. Thank you, Mike. 1832 is the one from James Mulholland's journal. Um, and so this one wa- wasn't written by Joseph, but it was. it is the official version now. All right. Let's this look. is the one that we all learn in seminary and memorize and young men's and stuff like that, right? For the most part. All right, let's roll. Yep. Owing to the many reports which have been put in circulation by evil-disposed and designing persons in relation to the rise and progress of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, all of which have been designed by the authors thereof to militate against its character as a church and its progress in the world, I have been induced to write this history so as to disabuse the public mind and put all inquirers after truth into possession of the facts as they have transpired in relation both to myself and the church as far as I have such facts in possession. In this history, I will present the various events in relation to this church in truth and righteousness as they have transpired, or as they at present exist, being now the eighth year since the organization of said church. I was born in the year of our Lord, 1805, on the 23rd day of December in the town of Sharon, Windsor County, state of Vermont. My father, Joseph Smith Sr., left the state of Vermont and moved to Palmyra, Ontario, now Wayne County, in the state of New York when I was in my 10th year. About four years after my father's arrival at Palmyra, he moved with his family into Manchester in the same county of Ontario. His family consisted of 11 souls, namely my father Joseph Smith, my mother Lucy Smith, whose name previous to her marriage was Mac, daughter of Solomon Mac, and my brothers Alvin, who died November 19, 1823, in the 25th year of his age, Hiram, myself, Samuel Harrison, William, Don Carlos, and my sisters Sophronia, Catherine, and Lucy. Sometime in the second year after our removal to Manchester, there was in the place where we lived an unusual excitement on the subject of religion. It commenced with the Methodists, but soon became general among all the sects in that region of the country. Indeed, the whole district of country seemed affected by it, and great multitudes united themselves to the different religious parties, which created no small stir and division among the people. Some crying, Lo here! and some, Lo there! Some were contending for the Methodist faith, some for the Presbyterian, and some for the Baptist, for notwithstanding the great love which the converts to these different faiths expressed at the time of their conversion, and the great zeal manifested by the respective clergy who were active in getting up and promoting this extraordinary scene of religious feeling, in order to have everybody converted as they were pleased to call it, let them join what sect they pleased. Yet when the converts began to file off, some to one party and some to another, it was seen that the seemingly good feelings of both the priests and the converts were more pretended than real, for a scene of great confusion and bad feeling ensued, priest contending against priest, and convert against convert, so that all their good feelings one for another, if they ever had any, were entirely lost in a strife of words and a contest about opinions. I was at this time in my fifteenth year. My father's family proselytized to the Presbyterian faith, and four of them joined that church, namely my mother Lucy, my brothers Hiram, Samuel Harrison, and my sister Sophronia. During this time of great excitement, my mind was called up to serious reflection and great uneasiness. But though my feelings were deep and often pungent, still I kept myself aloof from all these parties, though I attended their several meetings as often as occasion would permit. But in process of time, my mind became somewhat partial to the Methodist sect, 
and I felt some desire to be united with them. But so great was the confusion and strife amongst the different denominations that it was impossible for a person young as I was and so unacquainted with men and things to come to any certain conclusion who was right and who was wrong. My mind at different times was greatly excited, for the cry and tumult were so great and incessant. The Presbyterians were most decided against the Baptists and Methodists and used all their powers of either reason or sophistry to prove their errors, or at least to make the people think they were in error. On the other hand, the Baptists and the Methodists in their turn were equally zealous in endeavoring to establish their own tenets and disprove all others. In the midst of this war of words and tumult of opinions, I often said to myself, What is to be done? Who of all these parties are right? Or are they all wrong together? And if any one of them is to be right, which is it? And how shall I know it? While I was laboring under the extreme difficulties caused by the contest of these parties of religionists, I was one day reading the epistle of James, first chapter and fifth verse, which reads, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Never did any passage of scripture come with more power to the heart of man than this did at this time to mine. It seemed to enter with great force into every feeling of my heart. I reflected on it again and again, knowing that if any person needed wisdom from God, I did. For how to act I did not know, and unless I could get more wisdom than I then had, would never know. For the teachers of religion of the different sects understood the same passions of Scripture so differently as to destroy all confidence in settling the question by an appeal to the Bible. At length, I came to the conclusion that I must either remain in darkness and confusion, or else I must do as James directs, that is, ask of God. I at last came to the determination to ask of God, concluding that if he gave wisdom to them that lacked wisdom, and would give liberally, and not abrade, I might venture. So in accordance with this my determination to ask of God, I retired to the woods to make the attempt. It was on the morning of a beautiful clear day, early in the spring of 1820. It was the first time in my life that I had made such an attempt, for amidst all my anxieties I had never as yet made the attempt to pray vocally. After I had retired into the place where I had previously designed to go, having looked around me and finding myself alone, I kneeled down and began to offer up the desires of my heart to God. I had scarcely done so, when immediately I was seized upon by some power, which entirely overcame me, and had such astonishing influence over me as to bind my tongue, so that I could not speak. Thick darkness gathered around me. It seemed to me for a time as if I were doomed to sudden destruction, but exerting all my powers to call upon God to deliver me out of the power of this enemy which had seized upon me, and at the very moment when I was ready to sink into despair and abandon myself to destruction, not to an imaginary ruin, but to the power of some actual being from the unseen world who had such marvelous power as I had never before felt in any being. Just at this moment of great alarm, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head, above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. It no sooner appeared than I found myself delivered from the enemy which held me bound. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages, whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son. Hear him. My object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all the sects was right, that I might know which to join. No sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak, than I asked the personages who stood above me in the light which of all the sects was right, for at this time it had never entered into my heart that all were wrong, and which I should join. I was answered that I must join none of them, 
for they were all wrong, and the personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that those professors were all corrupt, that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. He again forbade me to join with any of them, and many other things did he say unto me, which I cannot write at this time. When I came to myself again, I found myself lying on my back, looking up into heaven. Some few days after I had this vision, I happened to be in company with one of the Methodist preachers who was very active in the before-mentioned religious excitement, and conversing with him on the subject of religion, I took occasion to give him an account of the vision which I had had. I was greatly surprised at his behavior. He treated my communication not only lightly, but with great contempt, saying it was all of the devil, that there was no such thing as visions or of revelations in these days, that all such things had ceased with the apostles, and that there would never be any more of them. I soon found, however, that my telling the story had excited a great deal of prejudice against me among professors of religion, and it was the cause of great persecution which continued to increase, and though I was an obscure boy only between fourteen and fifteen years of age, or thereabouts, and my circumstances in life such as to make a boy of no consequence in the world, yet men of high standing would take notice sufficiently to excite the public mind against me, and create a hot persecution, and this was among all the sects, all united to persecute me. It has often caused me serious reflection, both then and since, how very strange it was that an obscure boy of a little over fourteen years of age, and one who was doomed to the necessity of obtaining a scanty maintenance by his daily labor, should be thought of a character of sufficient importance to attract the attention of the great ones of the most popular sects of the day, so as to create in them a spirit of the bitterest persecution and reviling. But, strange or not, so it was, and was often cause of great sorrow to myself. However, it was nevertheless a fact that I had a vision. I have thought since that I felt much like Paul when he made his defense before King Agrippa, and related the account of the vision he had when he saw a light and heard a voice. But still, there were but few who believed him. Some said he was dishonest, others said he was mad, and he was ridiculed and reviled. But all this did not destroy the reality of his vision. He had seen a vision, he knew he had, and all the persecution under heaven could not make it otherwise. And though they should persecute him unto death, yet he knew and would know to his latest breath that he had both seen a light and heard a voice speaking unto him, and all the world could not make him think or believe otherwise. So it was with me. I had actually seen a light, and in the midst of the light I saw two personages, and they did in reality speak unto me, or one of them did. And though I was hated and persecuted for saying that I had seen a vision, yet it was true, and while they were persecuting me, reviling me, and speaking all manner of evil against me, falsely for so saying, I was led to say in my heart, Why persecute me for telling the truth? I have actually seen a vision, and who am I that I can withstand God? Or why does the world think to make me deny what I have actually seen? For I had seen a vision, I knew it, and I knew God knew it, and I could not deny it neither dare I do it. At least I knew that by so doing, I would offend God and come under condemnation. I had now got my mind satisfied, so far as the sectarian world was concerned, that it was not my duty to join with any of them, but continue as I was until further directed. I had found the testimony of James to be true, that a man who lacked wisdom might ask of God, and obtain, and not be upbraided. All right. I, got a lot I know of it well. I got a lot of notes on this one. Anybody want to start? It acknowledges um, at the beginning that there are different versions that have been floating around and that 
this is an attempt to sit down and make a, a definitive account. Um, that interested me. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and first, first thing I want to point out is this one firmly establishes the concept of um, the the first vision inaugurating a church. So this is when, and by this time, 1838, the concept of church and church governance and church authority had really been developed among the Mormons. So this was told within that context. Um, I talk about externalizing, um, you know, going from an internal event. Here's words that key, key off of an externalizing. Unusual excitement in the area, all sects in the region, great multitudes united to get themselves. Once again, there's no external evidence that any of these events were happening at the time, that all the sects in the region were in this big uproar of religion. There's unusual excitement. But, you know, Joseph Smith is going from this boy who reads the scriptures, goes out in the wilderness to pray, to all of the area around him being a tumult that he's going to to um, somehow work his way out of. Well, we have, we have uh, his brother William's account that Joseph had been seeing the Methodist minister, uh, what was his name, Reverend George Lane. And George Lane had given a sermon at these meetings that were held in these groves on James 1, uh, 1 5 and said, if any of you like wisdom, go and ask of God. He was trying to draw, you know, you had the Presbyterians, the Baptists, and Methodists all preaching at the same time. And George Lane inspired Joseph to go pray, or, or actually to go home and look up the scripture. But what was, un he said there was unusual excitement in the area. What was unusual about that? Well, you had the traveling ministers that go around and kind of stir everybody up. The itinerant, everybody come to their... the itinerant preachers have been around for a long time. What was unusual? Well, I know in his home, his family was split up over who's going to what church. And he would, Joseph was going to the Methodist church, and his mom was going to the Presbyterian church. And I'm sure there were similar family things going on around that time as well. Okay. Uh, do we want to talk... Uh, George, you mentioned earlier before we started recording about the um, the problem of the um, revival meetings. Yeah, I did, I did a little research on this, and it sounds like in the 1820 year, and I'll, I'll see if I can look these up and post the, the actual um, stats out on the, on the blog, but what, what occurred in 1820 as far as revivals in the various churches was virtually nothing as far as new converts. Uh, the Methodists got like five, um, you know, the Baptists got two or three. Where in newspapers and in the actual um, statistics coming from the local churches, it happened, it sounds like 1824 was the revival year. And then you find where um, the, the, some of the churches were getting three or four hundred conversions that year. Um, and so it just uh, it has a problem with the, with the 1820 and revival both happening in the same, the same time frame. Yeah, and there's been a lot of work done on that. Um, it's a good point you bring up. I'm glad you brought it up, um, George. And we'll probably have to devote a future podcast to the whole issue of what was going on at the time. Um, but, you know, my point is it appears that Joseph Smith is exaggerating a bit, or at the very best, he's getting, he's getting events in his mind conflated. And if that's the case, once again, it prejudices the witness. Why should we believe him if he can't keep these things straight? Well, it could be off in timing. Uh, like, if he if he had this off a little bit and, and didn't remember the exact year that it happened, um, 
the, the struggle with that if it was off by a year or so, I could I could see where that could happen. With the this revival thing, you know, to be off by four years um, doesn't make sense. I did find the metrics. The Baptist Church in 1820 received eight people. The Presbyterian Church added 14. Methodist Circuit lost six people. Um, four years later, in 1824, the Baptist Church received 94, Presbyterians 99, the Methodists 208. Uh, so there's a lot of differences as far as revivalism and membership gains for these local churches between 1820 and 1824. Well, and, and as—go well, ahead, Mike. I was going to say, it sounds like everybody made up their mind four years later, but you could say that— <laughs> Maybe that's what there was. They were starting to get interested, which would be a tumult of opinion. Uh, could be. Um, you know, in the first vision, in the first account, he says he's in his 16th year, all of 15 years of age. And this one, he specifically states he's in his 15th year. And he states this more concretely. Um, so, But this is in conflict with the previous accounts. So, you know, what... As it, as it goes on, it gets more concrete. As a matter of fact, later he says, it was a beautiful, clear day early in the spring. You know, once again, more concrete. More information is coming out with each retelling. Um, I also want to point out some of the grandiose language that Joseph starts using. I kept myself aloof, and I attended their several meetings as often as occasion would permit. That Joseph is setting himself as that there, there is now this conflict that's going on around him in all these sects and all these religious people are arguing and they're fighting. But Joseph now in the account is this boy who is just searching for the truth. He's not the kid who is reading the scriptures and saying the whole world's in apostasy. He's watching this and he's going to their meetings, but he is above the fray. So Joseph has separated himself out from, from that thing that's around. Well, I think that's more of taking on his father and grandfather's role of, of being separate from these churches. He doesn't believe the proper churches on the earth, even though his mom wants him to go to the Presbyterian church with her. He sides with his father that, you know, there's, yeah, there's a lot of church, but the right one's not here. Well, and, and then he, then here, here's the, the kicker for me. He says, that was the first time in my life that he prayed vocally. Uh, I mean, obviously that's not true. So, so here, here's where, if you want a, a case where Joseph Smith is, uh, bends the truth to suit his own needs, because in his other account, he had talked about how, how his family had prayed together, and they'd, they, he talks about how they'd read the scriptures and all this stuff. And now he's saying this is the first time he's ever prayed. Now, why would he say that? Why? Well, is this solo or is in a, in a group setting? I mean, it's one thing to say the family dinner prayer. It's another to go on your own and say a personal prayer. He said it's the first time he'd prayed vocally, was his word, in the and account. He's probably referring to personal, I'm, I'm, I would assume. Well, there's a reason he would say that, because it makes him sound even better. Because you and I have prayed lots of times and not received any answer, but not Joseph Smith. The first time he ever tries, he has God appear to him, right? <laughs> Can I mention something interesting about, you know, we're talking about him going to pray? Sure. Uh, James James was the catalyst. You might say a four-day in Scripture to get him to go and give this prayer to talk to her father. If you look at the general epistle of James, it's a general epistle. James didn't write this to any one section of the church in his day. It's a general epistle. In the first verse, James 1.1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. 
So James is writing this epistle to the, to the lost tribes of Israel. Okay, how do you assume this is going to make it to the 12 tribes? Well, then you look at Joseph. Joseph's name, if you translate it from Hebrew, is he who gathers. And as the dispensation head, he is going to begin the gathering of Israel in preparation for the Christ's second coming. So this foreordained scripture goes to Joseph, who is the dispensation head and prophet, who is to begin the gathering of Israel. And I think that's a fascinating point. I don't get it. What do you mean you don't get it? I, I, I didn't follow. James Epistle. James' yeah. scripture is written to the scattered tribes. So is, Joseph's job is to bring the scattered tribes together. Is James in a, a, a what do you call it, a dispensation head? No, James is writing the scripture to Joseph. Wait, wait, wait. The epistle of James was written to Joseph Smith? Well, it, it's written to the scattered 12 tribes of Israel. And Joseph's job is to go bring everyone to Christ and bring in the scattered tribes. Where does it say that in James? James one one, oh, wait, I, I, the, I missed. The, I missed the where tribes were scattered. But that doesn't say anything about Joseph Smith. Well, that's Joseph Smith's role as the dispensation head is to begin gathering Israel. Said Joseph Smith. <laughs> All right, because Joseph in Hebrew means he who should gather. So that I mean, is that the connection that because the the Hebrew translation of Joseph is equivalent to what the first verse of James says? Then James is writing to Joseph Smith. No, jo the whole point of the restoration of the gospel is to gather Israel and, and gather everyone into the covenant and make them Israel. That's what, that's what Joseph's job is, is to gather scattered Israel in. You're probably right, because this was before tithing. <laughs> George, George in Hebrew means I, he who can smell something stinky. <laughs> I think you should add of interest. Hiram translates to "My brother is exalted." Oh gosh, <laughs> he's coming up. This is like the Hebrew coming out of the school of the prophets in Kirtland, isn't it? <laughs> oh, let's go, go look it up. Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> so, I, I, remind, remind, bring that up some. <laughs> bring that up some other time, Mike. And a, Emma in Hebrew means yeah, sure. Take another. <laughs> Why stop with one? <laughs> and Fanny just means Fanny. <laughs> but only in Hebrew. What about in Reformed Egyptian? Yeah, okay, let's get let's get back on track. <laughs> all right, all right. Um so once again I want to point out some of the language. Um talks about the powers of darkness, thick darkness gathered around me. It seemed to me for a time as if I were doomed to sudden destruction. But exerting all of my powers to call upon God, now Joseph himself is contending with with uh, the devil. So in the first in the first one there was no devil. In the second one there was a devil um, that he heard behind him, but it was it was dispersed by the light. And now let's pay attention to that language. Exerting all of my powers, it's Joseph who's overcoming the powers of darkness. Um, well, but it's not enough. I mean, like could have actually succeeded then, you know, he's a pretty powerful guy. But, I mean, th this is kind of the same story that we get later on in the the, the Moses uh, revelation that he has, you know, where, where this whole thing's being recreated, that, that Moses did it with, with Satan, too, and came to the conclusion that Satan cannot be overcome by the natural man's powers. You've got to invoke the power of, of 
Christ to, uh, I mean, that's what happens here, right? That he, he's going to be overcome unless Christ comes in and intercedes. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can, I can take that. Um, I, I've been talking a lot about the pillar of light. Now the pillar of light is exactly overhead and it's the brightness of the sun and it descended gradually. So I, it's gone from, you know, very ephemeral to purely a concrete event that he describes in great detail. Um, now And now we see, of course, that um, Jesus and God ap appear matching the doctrinal innovations of the time. Um, and, of course, here's the zinger again. For at this time it had never entered into my heart that they were all wrong. That has to be a, a flat-out lie, because he had said in the, in the 1832 vision that he, he had read the Scripture and decided they were all wrong. So I want to hear I want to hear you guys defend this one. Well, he was you, actually you really asking. <laughs> he is asking which of them are true. He didn't he didn't it didn't come to his imagination that they were all wrong. He wanted to know which one is the right one. That was his question. He would he didn't he didn't suppose that Christ was going to answer the world they're all wrong. He thought Christ would say go join the Methodists. That was his question. All right, let's read his, this is his sentence from the 1832 account. I yeah. found that mankind did not come unto the Lord, but they had, but that they had apostatized from the true and living faith, and there was no society or denomination that built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, as recorded in the New Testament. That's what he found from reading the scriptures. And then 1838, Joseph Smith says, it had never entered in my heart that they were all wrong. Those two are incompatible. He That's found a minor it with point. His, minor he found point. it with his mind, but it didn't enter into his heart until later. How minor point? How much of the of the Mormon Church do we have to take Joseph Smith's word for? How much of it? We have no other source than Joseph Smith. He's supposed to get asked, and God and God would say, "Go join that church. That's the right one," because he knew that something was screwy. He knew that he knew that. Oh, what was the actual phrase he used? Is Joseph Smith um, a reliable witness? Is so Joseph yes, Smith a reliable witness? True. So couldn't both stories be true? He goes and says, um, and and you, I'm trying to defend it here for a minute. He goes and he has a theory that says they're all wrong based on what he's read, and he goes and he prays about it, and he gets an answer and says, "Yep, none of them are right." Isn't that how we have been taught in latter days that prayer is supposed to work. We're supposed to come up with these things in our own mind, come up with the answer, take it, and God will confirm it true or false. Wouldn't this be an early confirmation of doing that same principle? Sure, but why does he have the throwaway sentence that he never thought that they were all wrong? Well, he had actually entered into the Methodist kind of a seminary where you, you'd start to learn about the Methodist Church and join it, which he never finished doing. After he, this. You know, John, as, as an apostate yourself, <laughs> I'm, I'm quite surprised that you're equating apostasy with, with being wrong. But I don't understand. Well, he says that he thinks that they, you know, I, that, that he came to the conclusion that all of them had apostatized from the true and living faith and that there was no society that was built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the next thing he says is that he was mourning for his own sins in his own fallen state. So, I, you know, he, he could be thinking that the whole of humanity was in this, you know, 
fallen state needing a, a redemption. I, and I don't know that necessarily he thought at the time that there was no true church. I don't know. I'm just spinning. I'm going to stop. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> well, he learned no from idea. George Lane that you go to God with your problems and God will answer your prayers. And when he went home and studied the same scripture he'd heard about in church that day, he, he, it struck him the Holy Ghost worked upon him. And it's a perfect example of how the Holy Ghost works. He received a revelation to go get a revelation. That was the Holy Ghost saying, and move beyond the point you're now at and go further. So he takes that Holy Ghost inspiration and goes and prays and says, which of the churches are true? But he doesn't, I mean, in this first 1831, 1832 version, does he say that that was the purpose for going to prayer, that, to find out which church was true? No, he was concerned about sin. Yeah, he, he was looking for yeah. forgiveness. Because because he does say, and, and as John pointed out, that he, he felt that there was no society or denomination that was true. So he wouldn't be going to pray to ask which one was. Right. And in this one, the, good point. In this one, the whole point of the vision is he, re, the, uh, is he reads the scriptures, he's confused about which church he should join, and he goes into the woods. That is completely 100%, 180 degrees opposite of what the first account of the first vision is about. No, because why would he be concerned about which church is true? So he know how to get a, re a remission of his sins. No, but, but, but Mike, in the first one, he's not. He doesn't say that he's interested in which church to join. Right. But that's why he'd want to know which church to join, is to know which, how to no, receive remission of his Mike, sins. He thought they in, were all in, false. In 1831, he wasn't asking that question. And he, he doesn't say anywhere in here that I could see. I mean, if you could point it out to me, I'd be happy to, to, to see it. But, but where does he say in the 1831 version that the reason he went to pray was to find out which church to join? He doesn't. And let's point out that in this 1838 vision, the whole personal forgiveness thing is dropped completely. So the first two accounts, 8032, 8035, talk about personal forgiveness, and that is just left out completely. It's not mentioned at all in this one. So it's not just a matter of sort of retelling it. He, he, is, he has switched the whole purpose of this narrative. All right, and then another thing I like, this shows up in a lot in um, later Joseph Smith writings. In, in his early writings, he was younger. He wasn't as good at it, but now he's getting a lot better at it. He says this, um, I cannot, you know, there are things that I cannot write at this time. He, he always gives himself now out so he could later go and reinsert stuff back, back in. There's my cynical comment of the, of the night. That's Act your cynical comment Act of the night? My, my 20th <laughs> cynical comment. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, I do want to point out, he now talks about that his account excited a great deal of prejudice, persecution which continues to increase. Men of high standing would take notice. He attracted the attention of the great ones. Joseph Smith obviously suffered from delusions of grandeur to some extent. I mean, no, the, he's what, talking about the ministers around them. They, they went to go tell did, them what happened. There know, is, I did they what didn't you write said. any of I went this. And prayed. I got an answer, and this is what happened. And how did the minister respond? There's no account so, of that. So I want to go into that. How did the minister respond thing? Because this is one that that came up for me very strongly, um, and and. Bushman talks about it in Rough Stone Rolling. So the, we've always been taught that the, the reason that, that Joseph was rebuffed was that, you know, the minister was targeting him and his experience and said, you know, you can't do that. You know, you may have had a special experience, but I'm not going to accept it and you just go away. 
And Bushman kind of re rejects that premise and says that he didn't, that the minister didn't reject it because he was unique. He rejected it because it was common. Um, he says, and I'm quoting here, Sub subjects of revivals all too often claim to have seen visions. And then Bushman brings up four or five examples here of in 1826, a preacher at the Palmyra Academy said he saw Christ, and you know, Wayne Sentinel in 1823 reported Asa Wilde's vision of Christ in Amsterdam, New York. Nora Stearns published an account in 1815 of two beings who appeared to him. One was God my maker, almost in bodily shape like a man. Um, so it wasn't necessarily that, that this minister was rejecting Joseph, it was just rejecting the whole idea that Christ appears Again, especially from the Methodist side, because the Methodists are, are basically saying that uh, things stopped. That I mean, it's part of their things, and they were just tired of everybody. So it wasn't that he was unique, it was that he was common. He was just one more of a number of people who claimed to see, see Christ. Wait, I, I, I'm confused now, because I, is this, I mean, is there a historical account of this minister saying that Joseph Smith claimed to have seen Christ, because... So I've never found any historical account, but in it's the... It's William. In all, uh, but William I mean, does he say Christ? Because in, in, in this first, this early 1831 version, it was personage, right? It, it wasn't identified as Christ? It's a great question. At that point, we don't know who it was. It was just personage. Okay, so if, if, if this minister is on record anywhere saying that Joseph Smith claimed Christ. I mean, that answers that question for us. But otherwise, we're just assuming. Yeah, good good point. And, and, and maybe what the, the common revelation was, or are these angelic visions, you know, that fit this tail type, this, this pattern that we talked about earlier before. Uh, I mean, that, that it's, it's an interesting thing in Bush, but I'll have to go back and read it. I, just, I guess my point to to Mike is that we cannot use a minister's rejection of Joseph Smith's story of anything occurring to prove that it actually did because the, the ministers around the area were just inundated with similar stories and it wasn't it, we just can't use that as a valid indicator um, any longer to say oh he wouldn't have been re it, that kind of shows the proof that this is because the minister was somehow threatened by Joseph Smith and therefore therefore it, it would uh, you know diminish his flock or diminish the size of his flock if all these people went over it wasn't that at all it was just, he was tired of hearing these from everywhere well I mean let's just, let's put the story today suppose in the Ward House, uh, this next fast and testimony meeting, a 14-year-old girl wearing her, you know, Blink-182 t-shirt gets up and uh, says that God visited her and told her that all the churches were wrong. Um, how do you suppose the Mormons would react? Would that, would, that, would that be a sign of their, of their apostasy? Should you believe a 14-year-old who tells you they've seen God? Would any rational person do so? What did he say? That he saw God. And the God told him all the churches were wrong. Would that be a rational thing to believe? No, it would not. No, not in our frame of reference and not what we've been taught. 
But, but um, even the Joseph Smith story isn't a rational thing to believe, and people aren't coming to a testimony of it through, you know, using their rational mind. Of course not. But Joseph so, seems to de, to to um, deride the 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 ministers around him for not believing his tale rationally. That's my only point. Yeah. Now, there's one last thing I want to get to, um, which is I, I think the most key part of the 1838 event. Um, Joseph Smith is doing a wrap-up, and he says, I had actually seen a light, and in the midst of the light I saw two personages, and they did in reality speak unto me. Or one of them did. That or one of them did has been deleted from the account because it casts um, a shadow of doubt on the whole thing. Joseph Smith goes through and talks about how they both have these speaking roles, and then at the end, he hedges, and he says, they did both speak to me, or one of them did. So you can see why some unnamed church functionary has deleted that from the current version of the scriptures. Okay. No, no, no uh, defense? No, I mean, to, to me, it's... It's one of those rhetorical devices that people, when they say, they don't really think about what it means. It just sounds good and doesn't get questioned, and people gloss over it, and you're questioning it. So Seems valid. Why was it deleted? Because it doesn't. It doesn't help. <laughs> uh, but I've, and this is a question I want to pose to Mike. Uh, you know, one thing is when I was sliding out of the church that struck me, as I, I saw all the additions and deletions to the revelations. That that takes a lot of hubris to believe that Joseph Smith is the man second only to God, and that this event was the event second only to the resurrection, and then to go and take a red pen to it. <laughs> What's wrong with that? I think that? It's Joseph's job to dispense the knowledge we have for this dispensation. So he's going to clear it up and speak it as clearly as he can for our understanding. Right. Exactly. So what gives somebody who's not a dispensation head to take a dispensation pen and draw a dispensation <laughs> line through what Joseph Smith has said? Well, was he doing it under, under Joseph's direction? We have no idea. No. We don't know who did it. It, it might have been B.H. Roberts. Um, but Well, it says here, uh, let's see. Oh, I have the guy's name. Willard Richards in 1842 went through this account and edited it. He had, he added a note A and a note B to it. One was a note about him leaning against the fireplace and telling his mother Presbyterianism wasn't true. Uh, and he had another one, he was laying on his back and the light had departed and he had no strength. That's what. So that's who edited it was uh, Willard Richards. Um, yeah, and I'm and I'm I'm not sure if that's where this this little couplet got um, dropped out. Um, that actually isn't in my. I don't see that one crossed out in my version I have in front of me. But if you look no, at what John's saying, is it's not in the it's not in the official version that we have in the Pearl of Great Price. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you open your scriptures, it's not there. Um, can I can I say something about verse nineteen? You can say whatever you want, Mike. Uh, I was answered that I must join none of them if they're all wrong, and the person who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in this sight, that these professors were all corrupt. They draw near to me the list, but their hearts are far from me. Uh, God has a, had a little reason to be annoyed at this. They, they've taken his body away. They've taken his gender. They've taken his manhood. They took his fatherhood. They took his passion. They robbed him of his family. They took everything away that was meaningful. And then they redefined his, 
what man was, who were his children, and they insulted all his children. Uh, they cut off the association his children had with him. Uh, you know, God had a little right to be angry and pissed off at this point. What? At, at the way the professors at, at when you go to these other churches, they strip God of who he is and strip us of who we are. And so that's what he's restoring here is, is who he is and who we are in his sight. So, Mike, when um, Hinckley was being interviewed um, by the by, uh, what's his name? Um, at the, Olymp- the Olympics thing? Was that the Olympics or something got interviewed? No, my mind just went Some blank. sporting event. Uh, the guy wears suspenders on CNN. Larry King. Okay. When Larry Hink- King. Mike, oh, that one. Mike, when, when, when um, Hinckley was being interviewed by Larry King and was asked about if God was once a man and... Hinckley said, I don't know that we believe that. Was Hinckley guilty of the same sin that you're accusing the um, the, the de- denominations of? No, because if we're talking about the Father, we don't know that the Father was ever did the same thing we did. We assume he did, but we don't know. We have nothing canonized that the Father did those things. We, we can assume that he did, but we don't have anything canonized that the Father did those things. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, I mean, that's probably a discussion for another day. All right. Any other um, thoughts on the 1838 account? Okay. Let's let's roll with the 1842 account. Now, now oh, what? I'm sorry. Let me add one thing. Okay. Go ahead. Um, the part where the father introduces the son. Uh, that's an example of of priesthood order and the order of heaven. That the father says Christ has all my authority and steps back, and Christ bearing all the authority of the Father comes forward and handles things for us. So where where is there another instance of that happening? Well, we have... Um, I'm just... I'll, I'm just Third tr- Nephi. Third I, Nephi. This is my beloved son. Hear him. And then the son steps forward and teaches the Nephites. But we have, we have Adam walking with the Father until after the fall. Then post-fall, all of Adam's dealings are with the Christ. And that's, it's that way, that's the order of heaven, that's how priesthood works in the church. And that's how, you know, people have problems with us saying there's more God than one. This is how more God than one works. He gives his authority to someone who's proven themselves, and they handle things in the name of the Father. Okay, That Mike. doesn't delete the Father any, that doesn't delete the Son any, they're, they're one in purpose. You, you say this is an example of how things work in the church. Can you give me an example of in the church where we do follow this? Well, we all have the Melchizedek priesthood, right. but we have different uh, different stewardships in the church. That's not what you're saying. You're saying the the order of the priesthood is that the higher authority introduces the lower authority to act completely in their name. Right. Give me an example of that. Uh, just in your own ward. Uh, the bishop gives you a calling, and you're acting through the priesthood in that calling for and on behalf of those that are in charge. So the gospel doctrine teacher is teaching on behalf of the, the bishop. And the gospel right. doctrine could use the bishop's name and pretend to be the bishop, right? <laughs> well, no, we have our stewardships. Christ's stewardship is to take care of everything that happens on, on this earth. And, and the same thing happens as you go down the line. Mike, I'm not going to let you derail anymore. That's enough. <laughs> All right. How am I? That's pertinent yeah, to our right. conversation. All right. Uh, yeah, right. I, uh, <laughs> All right, let's go for the 1842 account. Now, there's not much here. I'm going to read it. Um, It's a paragraph and a half. Um, When about 14 years of age, I began to reflect on the importance of being prepared for a future state and inquiring about the plan of salvation. 
I found that there was a great clash in religious sentiment. If I went to one society, they referred me to another, one plan and to another, each one pointing to his own particular creed as the summum bonum of perfection. Considering that all could not be right, and that God could not be the author of so much confusion, I determined to investigate the subject more fully, believing that if God had a church, it would not be split up into factions, and that if he taught one society to worship one way and administer another set of ordinances, he would not teach another principles which were diametrically opposed. Believing the word of God, I had confidence in the declaration of James. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. I retired to a secret place in a grove and began to call upon the Lord. While fervently engaged in supplication, my mind was taken away from the objects which, with which I was surrounded. And I, was in, <laughs> and I was enwrapped in a heavenly vision and saw two glorious personages who exactly resembled each other in features and likeness, surrounded with a brilliant light which eclipsed the sun at noonday. They told me that all religious denominations were believing in incorrect doctrines and that none of them was acknowledged of God as his church and kingdoms, and I was expressly commanded to go not after them, at the same time receiving a promise that the fullness of the gospel should at some future time be made known unto me. Okay, so uh, what are your thoughts? Well, this one, the audience, the audience of this one was for George Barstow, who was writing A History of New Hampshire. So it was John Wentworth was the editor of the Chicago Democrat. Well, but Joseph Smith republished this in, in the um, Times and Seasons. So I, I, I don't think you can argue that narrow. Otherwise, they wouldn't have republished this to the, the, rest, of the, the rest of the world. So the normal uh, apologetic one is that this is uh, different just because it's directed and targeted at the non-member and the potential non-believer, and so it's got some different nuances in it from that perspective. So, so do we? Think I don't know if people, I don't know if I buy into that, but I think that's the the normal argument that said we have to tone it down a little bit just and make it different for the, that crowd. So for the apologists, are people who change their story depending on the audience, is that, is that a good thing? <laughs> I don't know that that's a good it's, defense. It's a Joseph milk Carrick. and meat argument, I guess. Well, remember the, the problem with Mormon doctrine, the reason they, they wanted Bruce R. McConkie to change Mormon doctrine. Some truths don't need to be said. You know, you need to tone it down for your audience. I suppose, but in in a lot of ways, he's getting more specific here. Um, he he's really getting specific about theological parsing, you know. And these things sort of, you know, he actually mentions that they um, were confused about the plan of salvation. Um, that that they were each pointing, rather than being in a war of words, they were each pointing to their own particular creed and their creedal points. So this is really in line with that sort of Joseph Smith getting more and more detailed. You know, where, once again, he's completely gone astray of the, I was, I wanted to pray for forgiveness, to that they were all in a state of confusion and great clashes with their doctrinal points. Well, the first time he didn't, he wasn't planning on starting a church probably at that point. But by the time he's gotten these things going, he's got a couple, you know, a few thousand followers. They have organized at this point. I mean, there's the the intention is completely different, and the story has to change in in order to accommodate that. Well, he's actually quoting Doctrine and Covenants section one. That was a revelation he received in 1831. They've strayed from mine ordinances and have broken mine everlasting covenant. They seek not the Lord to establish His righteousness, but every man walketh in his own way. He's he's actually quoting 
a, a much earlier revelation. I think that's that's important because in the, in the 1838 version, he really cites the churches as the sign of their apostasy is that they'd gone away from the scriptures. Okay, 1842, he can no longer accuse them of that because by this time, I mean, he's already married several women, right? He's gone way far from the New Testament. So he has to, he has to... Well, who said he's sticking to the New Testament? Exactly. Yeah, the gospel's bigger than the New Testament. But, but, but see, he, he can't accuse them of that anymore. He used to be able to say this, because the early argument for the church, the Mormon church, was that everybody else was in apostasy. They were not following the primitive church. And he can't say that anymore because he's not following the primitive church. So he no, has to... no, 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 no. The, the primitive church has been restored in all of its truth. And the truths that are, are had today that aren't apparent in historical records are because the devil took them out. People who, pe people who were conspiring men took it out. So he, he created a, a nice way to be consistent with an imagined past. <laughs> I, if, you're, if you're harping on... And we hear that from Mike all the time. Like dispensation heads and, and you know, that, that Adam and Eve did baptism by immersion. And, you know, all, all these kinds of things. Plurality of wives in the city of Enoch or, you know, what, whatever whatever else was, was going on there. I... I, 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 I I think we come to a similar conclusion on this, John, but maybe not take the same path. <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, you look at that first line. I began to reflect on the importance of preparing for a future state. I mean, this is completely left field from everything else he said. I, I agree that he's talking differently to different um, audiences. That is absolutely clear. But I think he's sort of just making it up as he goes along. He's saying he's adding whatever he wants to whatever event in order to make whatever point he, he wants to. I don't know. I, I, I'm going to challenge you on the internal external thing here as well, because this is in, in supplication. My mind was taken away and I was enwrapped in a heavenly vision. So, I mean, this seems just as internal as yeah. any of the earlier ones. Yes. He goes back, but there's something that's more key here there. I mean, there's something that is very, very, very important in this account. Did you guys all catch it? That they were identical and setting up future artists to make who, creepy paintings. Who was there. identical? The father and the son were identical in no, appearance. No, father and the son are not mentioned at all in this account. The two glorious personages who exactly resembled each other in features and likeness. They told me that all religious denominations um, were incorrect um, and that none of them, of them was acknowledged of God. They refer to God in third person. So yeah, 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 yeah. there, there is no reason that somebody reading this would not just take this as an angelic visitation, and we'll no. But he's not giving this as a direct quote that they that they said God. He's summarizing what they told him. So the importance that's where the that's where the God in third person comes from. But the importance of the first vision is at, with the quotes I read at the beginning is that God and Jesus Christ are two separate, distinct beings. That does not appear in this account at all. He, it, it, no, you're right, but it's assumed. I, I mean, yeah, there's no way you're going to convince me that when he's telling this in 1842 and he says two glorious personages that he's not thinking of God the Father and Jesus Christ and expecting that his audience is going to know exactly who he's talking about. Okay, let's Agreed. take that. I think there's an implication there, John, that we got to 
All right. We need to accept that it's God and Jesus. Okay. Uh, so when you, when, uh, if um, it was Christ speaking, he changes person in the Doctrine and Covenants all the time. He'll be speaking of himself at one point and then speak as if he were the Father. And, and that's he speaks part of the, to the Nephites from out of the womb in the Book of Mormon. When he, when he says, I'm going to be born tomorrow, how do you do that? Okay, so so you guys are saying, no, no, it's implied that he's talking about God the Father and Jesus Christ, that his audience would have all known that, right? Let's talk about notable non-mentions of the first vision. These are contemporary documents or individuals who never mention the first vision once at all. All local newspapers. So the newspapers follow Joseph Smith a lot. Not one of them ever mentions the first vision. Alexander Campbell who was, of course, you know, the head of the Campbellite Church, who attacked Joseph Smith on all sorts of doctrinal fronts, never mentioned the first vision. E.D. Howe's 1834 Mormonism Unveiled, the first anti-Mormon document, does not mention the first vision. J.B. Turner's 1842 Mormonism in All Ages does not mention the first vision, another anti-Mormon document. The John Whitmer History does not mention the first vision. John Carell's 1839 History of the Church does not mention the First Vision. Sidney Rigdon never once in all of his writings ever referred to the First Vision. The Evening and Morning Star never referred to the First Vision. The Latter-day Saint Messenger and Advocate never referred to the First Vision. The Book of Commandments never talks about the First Vision. The Book of Mormon never mentions the First Vision or anything like unto it. And the Doctrine and Covenants never mentions the First Vision. It is completely missing from the, the early record. Now let's talk about individuals. These are notable individuals who reported the first vision as only an angelic visitation. So they just talked about it as another visit from angels. Oliver Cowdery, Martin Harris, Orson Pratt, Parley Pratt, Orson Hyde, William Smith, Lucy Mack Smith, George A. Smith, Heber C. Kimball, Brigham Young, John Taylor, and Wilford Woodruff. The only one from that list who ever changed it to mention that it was later a visitation from God was John Taylor, and he did that later in life. The rest of those guys apparently never had any idea that um, that the first vision was anything other than an angelic visitation, that the idea that God the Father and Jesus Christ appeared to Joseph Smith was missing from all those accounts. You know, I can't hear you banging on the table right now, but I can see it. <laughs> so um, nearly every other contemporary account up to 18, the 1870s have the first vision as an angelic visitation among other angelic visitations. It carried the status of the first vision. It was the first of many angelic visitations that Joseph received. So the question is, what happened in 1870s? Well, I, 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 I'd be curious. You went through a lot of stuff really quickly there. I, I'd be interested to go in and, and see what those people are saying, and they, I haven't read all those, those they, works. So. They either don't refer to it at all, they appear to have no knowledge of it, or they just refer yeah. to an angelic visitation. Um, we're talking about the first vision. How do they say it? Like, how do they say angelic visitation? They just talk about Joseph being visited by angels. Um, they, so, they, they use personages, they use angels, so the, they, the, the like I, any indication? The idea, well, if you take out the idea that God the Father and Jesus Christ are appearing to Joseph Smith as distinct, as distinct personages, the first vision sort of washes out with everything else Joseph Smith claimed. you got to remember, he claimed to have been visited by lots of people, by Paul and by uh, Moroni and, and, and Moses and who knows who else. So yeah. for, for them, there was no distinctive theological event that happened there. And that's what we're, that's what we're talking about, this theological event where God, Jesus, or, um, Joseph sees that God and Jesus are two separate physical beings. 
Well, we know Joseph preached it, but the emphasis in the early days of the church no, was we don't. the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. We don't know that Joseph preached it. Hey, we have hey, the John, account. You know, what, what, the guy, what the, go, go ahead, Mike. There's Joseph, the, that Jewish minister guy, came by and he told the story to him. He, Joseph preached it in Washington, D.C., or, I mean, Philadelphia, when he made the visit to Philadelphia. He preached it from the pulpit. Orson Pratt published it in 1840. But go read Orson Pratt's account. He doesn't refer to God and Jesus as two separate, distinct beings. That, that's, that's my point. Is, is there, they referred to a first vision. They talked about a first vision, but they did not talk about it in the theological terms that it's been set up today. That, that description that Gordon Hinckley gave of it does not match with, with the, the interpretation of the event before 1870. As a matter of fact, it's, it's just usually noted for its non-mention that people don't talk about it very often, where now it's of paramount importance. You know, John, you mentioned what happened in the 1870s, and you know, I, your your uh, discussion with with John Hamer and David Howlett a few weeks ago was really interesting to me when they talked about the divergence of you know uh, the, the the doctrine and covenants. You know, after the 1840s, where the the LDS Church in Utah, Salt Lake Branch, took it one way, Community of Christ, our LDS, took it a different way. What what is, what is their um, take on the first vision i mean if, if we split up with them from around 1842 and they have a similar belief that it was the two personages jesus and, and the father it, it would seem to me that that there was something that they had in common before 1842 and it wasn't just this 1870s salt lake branch of the church doing it as, but, i mean do you know as far as i know the uh, community of christ has always been trinitarian they've they've accepted the early book of mormonish interpretation they've never gone down the line of saying Christ is a distinct, separate individual from God. So I, it was a rhetorical question I asked about the 1870s. I, I'm prepared to answer, answer that when you guys are ready. I'm ready. So um, Brigham Young dies in 1877. And of course, Brigham Young was the um, proponent, the chief proponent of the Adam-God doctrine. Um, which, of course, was taught very openly in Utah and was part of the lecture at the Vale. Um, a lot of people were uncomfortable with the Adam-God doctrine, and because of wh how it how it placed, you know, you had this this tiering of gods, and, and we don't have enough time to go into the nuance of the Adam-God doctrine, but but it, it was real and it was really taught. Uh, but a lot of people were uncomfortable with it, and when Brigham died in 1877, the church was sort of left with a theological dilemma. So there was a strong desire to move away from the Adam-God doctrine towards a more understa mainstream understanding. Um, and, but the Adam-God doctrine was very well understood by the populace because of the lecture at the Vale, um, and they needed an authoritative way to dismiss it. So this is the point where you see the church start really using the, um, the first vision theologically as it stands today because it helped reaffirm that the church was a Christian church that um, and of course we now get the doctrinal um, innovation at this time that Jehovah and Jesus Christ are the same guy. So you see this modernization of the concept of Jesus. So the point is the the first vision, which is so key to the theology of the Mormon Church, came about because they needed to get rid of Adam God. Okay. <laughs> you guys pro probably weren't prepared to talk about that one. No. Yeah, that's that's pretty interesting concept, but yeah, it's something I'd never even thought of before. All right, Mike, what's your response to that? 
Well, I don't no, see how that's... No, no, don't let Mike start talking about this one. <laughs> how do you get that when you have a, the, the, the Joseph Smith history published in the Pearl Gate Prize? When was it published in the Pearl Gate Prize? Uh, I don't remember. It, it was it was after my time period there. But you have the other accounts where he mentions two personages and he says, this is my book. Oh, you think they no, just no, added no, that in? Let, no, those are... Go Let's make this another dummies podcast when we talk about Adam and God. <laughs> so, so I, I want to be. Joseph Smith said a lot of crazy stuff. That he said some stuff we agree with in the church. Now he said some stuff we don't. So what I'm saying is, when you're making the new theological um, advancements, what you do is you go back and try to find some weird thing Joseph Smith said. There's a lot of things we poo-poo that we downplay that we say, oh, he was talking as a man, or that was written out of context, or da 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 da. Who knows? I don't know what how they contextualized it. At that time, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have access to documents. So it's likely that before the 1870s, most people didn't know about the, the, the 1838 account that we rely on so much today. But after that, it became a way for them to leverage against the teaching of Adam God, which was prevalent in the church. Anybody who'd been to the temple knew it. Anybody that went through the temple knew that God commanded Christ and, and Adam to build the earth. Mike, I, I'd be I'd be very interested to get into this in more detail. Mike, you you got to talk about the the temple ceremony from eighteen fifties, not the one from after nineteen ninety. It was very it was different. All right, so we've gone through the first vision. I've I've given you my my thesis on why things changed. I think that's key. Um, I think the first vision was a uh, was something that wasn't real prevalent in the early days of the church, and it it came about later. Um, any last thoughts, you guys, for wrapping up? You know, I you you might want to edit edit this one out or keep it in, but but I've got my own first vision story that that uh, I, I made up when I was in high school, and I told to to friends um, for about a year year and a half, two years until I, I got really scared and stopped telling it completely. But it, it was because uh, a friend of mine was listening to ACDC and Led Zeppelin, and I thought that that was the pathway to hell. And so I, I started with this story that, that I told him as I was going to sleep at night. I was listening to the radio, and this music came on, and uh, I wanted to turn it off, and so I reached over and turned off, but nothing happened. And so I turned the power switch all the way to off just to make sure nothing happened. I could still still hear the music. So I unplugged it from the wall. Nothing happened. I could still hear the music until the the radio uh, or the song finally stopped. And it just scared me. And so I said an extra prayer that night, went to sleep. In the middle of the night, about 1 a.m., I woke up to a light that was in my room, at, at the end of the room. And there was this angelic being. And I described him in, in a lot of detail. I'll go kind of quickly for, for the sake of this here. He came over to me and told me that the Lord had heard my prayers and that uh, he had a message for me and that he uh, was, was ready to minister. And I remembered the words of Joseph Smith, that if you ever see a, an angelic visitor, you should shake their hands because if, if you know, they're, they're faking you out, then they'll, they'll reach out to shake your hand. You won't feel anything. But if they're a resurrected being, they, you'll either will fill something or they'll refuse. And so I, I asked him and he said, oh, sure. Yeah, no problem. He reached out to shake my hand. I felt nothing. But the, the look on his face remained nice and serene. But I just was scared. I was filled with fear. And I raised my arm to the square. And as soon as I started doing this, he saw me. And his whole countenance changed. And instead of light, there was darkness. 
And, you know, I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to leave. And he started getting sucked out of the, the room. And he was like wailing and gnashing of teeth and telling me that, uh, you know, that they were they were out for my destruction and there were all kinds of angels that were after me. So I, I told this story to so many people <laughs> and like they some, some believed me, some didn't believe me. But the, the last time I told this was when I was at BYU uh, at a camp out and everybody was telling ghost stories. And I was saying, oh, yeah, I've got a story that'll top anything you guys tell. And I told this and a guy came up to me afterwards. He was just shaking. And he said, I felt the spirit so strong in what you were telling me. Yeah, and I, I came up to the canyon tonight with my girlfriend and, you know, we, we, we brought just one sleeping bag. And, you know, my, my brother's. Uh, never went on a mission. I wasn't going to go on a mission, but after I heard this, I felt the Holy Ghost so strong telling me that, you know, what I was about to do was wrong and that I need to go on a mission. And this story has changed my life. And I knew the whole time that I was just spinning this lie and it scared me to death. But I can, I can tell you from, from that experience, I, I, I know what it's like to, to create a, a narrative and to gauge an audience reaction and to go, okay, I need to lay on a little bit more about what this guy looked like and what, 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 what did he look like when his countenance changed? And, and here's how I changed my vocal inflections here. And I got really good at telling the story. So it's, it's not hard for me to imagine with Joseph Smith that there was something very similar that he was telling a story that had a real strong impact on people, whether with him it really happened or not. I, I don't know, but with with me, I've had that experience telling a story, getting people to believe it, uh, and having that evolve over just a period of a couple of years. Here we're talking twenty or so years with the with the. You've had me going, but I was going to stop you in the middle and ask you if it was the guy's name was you know Marty McFly or Calvin Klein because it sounded <laughs> yeah, like it, right. you were headed down Back to the Future. <laughs> this was after Back to the Future. This yeah, was, this would be like eighty eight, eighty nine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but but there there was plenty of you know Mormon stuff in there as well. That uh, yeah. so that that's that's what I wanted to say. <laughs> no, it's it's a good story. I and I I do believe you know some people wonder it was Joseph Smith just an out and out fraud. I, I tend to to more. I think there's times when he was obviously lying. I mean, we caught him in one tonight. Um, but I, I think he tended to believe his own stuff to some extent. Um, and I, I think if you told a story like that and then people start telling you, oh, this has changed my life, you might start thinking strange rationalizations like, well, God really wanted me to tell this story. So in that sense, it's true because it's a yeah. it's a story that teaches, teaches two true principles. And I think people can get caught up in that sort of thing. Um, but I, I, I think when I read these these accounts, there's nothing there to indicate to me that, that these events were concrete and real. And and at least with the Book of Mormon, we have three and eight witnesses we have to deal with. With this one, we only have Joseph Smith's word, and his word is not very reliable because it keeps changing all the time. All right. Any other last thoughts? All right. As always, the discussion continues at the website, uh, mormonexpression.com. You can send us a mail at mail at mormonexpression.com. Or you can call and leave us a message at 801-906-6722.